0: Welcome to the third episode of our new series, which is called Explore Ecstatic Sensuality. Today's episode will be somewhat abbreviated, and we're going to bring up three topics in a very kind of thumbnail kind of a way, or like a log line for a film. I was in the film business more than I am today. I... uh, hired someone who knew my taste to go through piles and piles of scripts submitted by agents and producers and studios, whatever, and one of her jobs was to do a synopsis of each script, and another part of the job was to simply provide what you might call a logline of the story. She happened to be a lover of mine at the time, so uh, she knew my taste. Oh dear, that doesn't sound so good, does it? Okay, so uh, a, a typical log line might be a small art supply store in Poughkeepsie, New York, is burglarized overnight. A detective shows up in, uh, in the morning who is uh, named Herschel Suskind, and he's a very, very nice uh, intellectual type of detective, but he's also kind of like a dog with a bone in terms of not letting anything go, and his girlfriend is a very brilliant Psychic, in addition to being the world's greatest computer expert. And what they find when they enter this burglarized location is that all of the canvases have painted on them solutions to all of the outstanding mathematical dilemmas, mathematical formulas that no one else could crack, mathematical problems until the the present day, and the girlfriend, Herschel Susskind's girlfriend, says, it could only be aliens. So that's a logline for a film, and so today we're going to be presenting information in sort of a logline type of way without going into anything in too much depth or brewing under the surface, as you might say. We're just going to discuss these in a somewhat cursory fashion, and we're going to begin with dreams, then we're going to go on to the subject of energy, per se an important element, component of sensuality and of life itself and even beyond life itself. And The, the third thing that we're going to discuss is roles. Alright? Not role playings, I'd say. Just a whole notion of roles in life. So, with that introduction we're going to begin by talking about dreams. Sigmund Freud, whom we brought up before, had his big hit in 1899, if you want to call it that, with his book *Die Traumdeutung*, the Interpretation of Dreams, which he did several things to later. He did a short version, he did a longer, extended version, but I mean, this was really his hit. If you and put him on the map more than anything else had done previously. It remains a bestseller after all this time. And one of the main ideas that he brings up in that book, that he proposes in this bo- in that particular book, is the idea that dreams represent wish fulfillment. Okay, so we're, you know, dreaming along, and what we see in our dream is a fulfillment of some type of wish that we had during the day. But it's not that simple, it's not that easy. Chandra Ferenci, who was one of Freud's, somewhat more radical students, but also very insightful students, and uh, collaborated with Sigmund Freud, emphasized the fact that dreams are over-determined. That is to say that what we see in dreams are, on the one hand, what we experience in dreams are, are on the one hand, childhood memories and impulses and, and figures. From as far back as infancy, in some cases, on the one hand, and the other thing that factors into the dream that plays off against these childhood impressions, ideas, experiences is simply the often unobserved reality of the person's life during the previous day. Okay, so there's a conflict in a certain way, and there's also an effort built into the dream structure to repress, there's that, that word again, things about the dream that are uncomfortable. Okay, this is a sort of classic psychoanalytic theory of dreams and, uh, you know, I like it. It's had a major influence on me. I should say, by the way, in terms of Freud's history, that this work, I say, it was a big hit and people were not too radically negative about it. if They were negative about it at all. But then he went on in 1905, only six years later, to publish his very famous, not very long book, Three Studies on Sexuality. The first chapter of which is perversions, which is a little bit more radical, let's just say. And the second chapter is about infantile sexuality, which deals with some of the things we were talking about last time, the oral, the the anal, and the genital phase of psychosexual development in the very young young child. And this one maybe didn't go so well. It was highly influential, but it's, uh, it wasn't the old Sigmund Freud that people were comfortable with. Vienna, Austria, was a very fascinating time in the last years of the 19th century and in the first decade, uh, decade and a half until World War I broke out of the 20th century. For example, and for, by comparison, but another great Jewish intellectual and creative artist. artist, my favorite composer and the wellspring of everything I do in music, Arnold Schoenberg, who a little bit later finished a piece of music called the Gure Leader*. The Gure Leader* was a very large piece for vocal soloists, chorus, and large orchestra, which was very much in the tradition of Gustav Mahler, except in many ways it was more advanced than Mahler in some ways in terms of its harmonic structure and in other ways, but all the same it was, it was a big hit, it was highly acceptable to the Viennese audience at that time, but then Schoenberg did something a few years later, after the, uh, the three studies on, on sexuality and Freud, he premiered a piece called Puro Lunaire, and Puro Lunaire turned music upside down, and it's done so ever since. It's a completely different sonic world and thought world. And you think about so many things going on in Vienna at that time, Gustav Klimt, the artist, and, and others. Schoenberg, of course, was also a very good painter. So a fascinating period of time, of course, cut short, first by World War I. In the 20s, there was a resurgence, but, a resurgence, but then in the 1930s, with the Nazis and Kristallnacht, seeing many people fleeing Austria, Schoenberg and Freud, both. So that is the the classical idea of dreams, but I'm going to just take it from a more of a personal standpoint and look at it differently. I see dreams as a great opportunity to travel backward and forward in time, to experience things in this weightless realm, but by weightless, it is not a-sensual at all. It is not a-sexual at all. It relates very much to our physicality, but it is a physicality experienced in an expansive way. I'm going to share with you a dream I had about a week ago. And dreams, often we're sort of floating, and our, the environment changes, and we're lying down, or we're cuddling, or we're standing up. With, you know, we have different modes of being. Time has a different framework. And I, I realized that I was kissing someone, a woman I used to know and was very fond of and attracted to. And the kiss went on a very, very long time. And there was a tremendous mutuality to that kiss, a tremendous exploration. And the kiss seemed to have meaning and implications and feelings throughout the body and emotional and, and intellectual feelings. It was truly astonishing. That went beyond what we normally think of as classic what they sometimes still call, I think, a French kiss. I don't know. Sometimes you think of French people kissing and it's on one cheek and the other. But it was a a tongue kiss with lips and tongue very much involved. But there was an entanglement, as we brought up last time when we talked about quantum physics, an entanglement between me and the woman, whom I no longer know, so it's I'm not going to say who she wants or is. But there was a connection that was so remarkably deep, brought about by this sensual, physical dream experience. So dreams are, are a way that we can... Navigate and explore realms of sensuality. Navigate and explore psychological realms, intellectual realms, realms of travel, realms of being located outside of a normal framework, either in two different places at the same time. The whole notion of time and dreams is radically different. There's a current subject of discussion, and has been for several years, in philosophy and physics too, to a certain extent, which is called retrocausality, can the future influence the past? Many interesting discussions on that. So quantum mechanics, we brought up last time, many interpretations, some interpretations of quantum mechanics say that the human observer is key to determining what is true and what is not whether a photon, a particle, passes through a slit as a particle or as a wave. Things along those, those lines. But it's that moment of conscious determination and judgment or determination in the human mind that determines what is true from the standpoint of that subatomic particle. And you say, wait a minute, I mean, you know, can cats do the same thing? Amoebae, can they do it? This is some pretty, pretty weird and interesting stuff. And so retrocaussation was, uh, Hugh Price, for example, has brought that up as an alternative to the idea of what Albert Einstein called spooky action at a distance, which meant he didn't like the idea of two entangled particles remaining entangled, that is, having the same polarity, plus or minus, uh, if they were separated by distance. So if you change the polarity of one of these little particles here, and you change the polarity of the other one, way over here, and if they can maintain the same polarity, Einstein didn't like that one bit. So you go into interesting people in, in quantum physics, and for example, John Bell, Bell's inequalities, etc., etc. but many of these issues are, in large part, still under discussion. So, this is an interesting from dreams we can jump off to our second topic which is the topic of energy qua energy energy per se einstein famously wrote e equals mc squared energy equals mass times a constant squared and that constant being our good old friend the speed of light Let's talk about some things for a second. The, uh, the speed of light, whether, for example, there's a, a particle called the tachyon, which seems to exist, which goes faster than the speed of light. And if it does, and if it can, can be measured in these large colliders that they have in Switzerland and elsewhere, then that's a problem for, uh, for Einstein. A few years ago, an interesting physicist named, uh, I think, Alan Aspect was one of the people, there was another character. Believe that neutrinos, uh, which are quite a well-known particle, could travel faster than the speed of light. and He seemed to have measurements that showed that in Switzerland, but boy, they were after him like crazy. And they had to check the switches and the, and the resistors and the capacitors in that collider, and they said, well, you know, I guess something was wrong with this machine that day. You know, because we just can't accept that anything goes faster than the speed of light because it throws it. And throws classical physics, what they call the standard model, not talking about measurements of women's bodies, but the standard model in physics, which they claim explains everything and then some. Since it was a big problem for them, then some other people came along during this last decade, and they started saying, "Well, you know, wait a minute." Talk about all these particles that you keep finding, and they, they keep trying to find more. They have Eighty million things that play around, quarks, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And they also spoke against the idea that everything takes place in a vacuum. You find the word vacuum used in mathematics, physics, and philosophy. Alain Badiou, whom we mentioned last time, uses the idea, the term vacuum, all the time. But maybe there's no vacuum at all. They say that everything is composed of space-time atoms remember space and time are the same thing you know, Richard Wagner in his opera Parsifal you know a long time ago said pretty much that and everyone said well Richard Wagner is not to be taken seriously he wasn't really a philosopher but who knows poets and philosophers and composers have if not stumbled upon exactly devised fantastic truths and, and That's what art is about, to find find truth amongst other things, and to find pleasure. But also on the subject of of energy, and sort of in parallel with, with Einstein, but in other ways not, you might say, there was a guy named Erwin Schrödinger. And Erwin Schrödinger had a really interesting idea when we talk about energy and movement and motion, per se. He proposed that there was something called Sitterbewegung, a German word meaning, if you translate it, jitter motion. This is kind of like Brownian movement, which you, if you studied high school physics or anything, you've heard that term, and you know what that is. But Sitterbewegung is down in a very, very deep level in everything, and it is certainly not an exclusive property of carbon-based matter, so-called you know, uh, organic matter or living matter at all. Zitra is inherent to matter and is a kind of fundamental movement that underlies everything. A fundamental energy that underlies everything. So, wow, that's interesting. Maybe you never thought of it that way. You think of these silly models of the uh, electrons whirling around the the, the nucleus with its uh, protons, whatever, and all of that uh, balderdash. But you don't really think that underneath all of this, and if you will, powering all of this, is something that is very fundamental to existence. Sitterbovegan, jitter motion, jitter movement. So if you begin to realize that energy is such a fundamental aspect of everything in the universe, as I mentioned a moment ago, why not tap into it? Why not feel yourself as filled and sparked with, with, with energy in everything you do, including your sensuality? Every touch, every breath, every kiss, every motion, every gaze, every word should be powered by This phenomenal underlying sense of energy, the interaction of two lovers, should take place within the framework of citta vega, of this underlying energy. And when that does happen, all of the boundaries go away. All the impossibilities are lost. And we, as lovers, whoever the the other party in the we happens to be, we as sexual partners, let's just say, are from that point on in a realm where our energy is shared, intertwined, commingled, and we rise to new heights of sensuality and if you'll excuse my using that word, which I haven't used that much in these discussions, pleasure. Why not? Why not use energy, our underlying energy, as an element, as a source, as a wellspring of our pleasure, of our interaction with our beloved? It's heat, but it's more important than heat. Heat is a fairly trivial kind of a thing involving calories and all that kind of stuff that they talk about. Zitterbewegung is everywhere. You can't measure it because it's all over the place. You can't say, well, there's Zitterbewegung of this area rates about a five, and Zitterbewegung of this area rates about a 53. No, that's not the, that's not how it works. It's everywhere, but our, our challenge is to recognize that feeling, to tap into that feeling, to share that feeling with our loved one or the person with whom we're experiencing sensuality. Very introductory discussion of an extremely important subject which I've dealt with more extensively in my writings in terms of the implications of Sid Vegan for the energy crisis in the world, for example. But we'll let that pass and when uh, my books become widely available, we'll see what I'm talking about. The last thing we're going to talk about today is the idea of roles. Everyone talks about role playing and all this kind of stuff, and and uh, I don't want to pretend that and this is very important. I do not wish to put myself forward as a relationship authority, relationship coach, relationship counselor by any means. I'm more of a research, theoretical psychologist, to the extent that that describes me. Philosophical, delver into psychological sexual matters. Uh, and also matters involving neuroscience from various philosophical perspectives but in terms of relationships I'm not the guy I'm not the person however at the end of this video I'm going to throw up on the screen some information about someone I know who is and uh, you'll see her name you'll see her some contact information for her she's uh, readily available for you on her wonderful page on Facebook why not so we'll leave that, you know, that part of the discussion for, uh, to have with her or other counselors, but uh, I recommend her most highly. So beyond that, let's, let's talk a little bit more about roles. And at the beginning, it's going to sound maybe a little bit uh, on the surface, and to say that, well, it's a little, little bit like transference that we talked about last time, taking a, a previous experience in our life that has not yet been worked through in our minds, that has not yet been Dealt with adequately in our thinking, and then superimposing that on our present experience, so that there's this undealt with material from the past and what we're living now in our current relationship, or it can be a work relationship, it can be any kind of relationship. But in terms of man, woman, or a woman, woman, or a man, man, or three threesome, whatever, whatever your configuration preference is, it's colored by, and it can really go for a fall. I have this little theory, but by the way, that, uh, that sometimes people in relationships build in an escape hatch, which is to say they get involved in relationships with people who they know at a certain level are going to have some very difficult tra- trait about them or behavior pattern ha- about them. It's either suspected or that they know it forthright. Someone who can't stand being around smoke, smokers or uh, cigarette smoke, finds himself involved with a smoker, and uh, that uh, the other, the partner's smoking becomes an escape hatch. Uh, a person that heavy is a more heavy drinker than the other person wants to be. Escape hatch. The, uh, the, the partner is uh, into drug use, and that becomes an escape hatch. It could be gambling. It could be. Any number, any number of things. That's just a theory I have, and um, I wonder if anyone else shares that. I've actually observed people in relationships for a long time, and they're kind of stuck there, and they, they get married simply so that shortly thereafter they can get divorced because they have no idea how to just separate in the normal course of things. Well, we're splitting up. They need that process. They need that other people to come in, lawyers and whatever, largely lawyers. To kind of put it on a more legal framework and to take all the, all the the, the the grit out of it, you, you might say, very curious thing. but in terms of roles, of course people take the roles that they play in their jobs and they take if a person is, uh, is, uh, is subservient in their, their work environment, sometimes they take that subservience home with them, they can't get rid of that. Self-deprecating, low self-esteem way of behaving, or they turn that around and they go home and they and uh, because they're so put upon at work by their employers and by other situations at work, they become most disagreeable uh, to their their partners and spouses at home. We've all seen this type of thing, and it's kind of obvious. But one thing that uh, I wrote about in, in, in one of my books, which is kind of interesting. Which is that so many men, it's hard to believe in in this day and age, so many men are looking for for mommy. Mommy not in the sense of the warm, loving thing that provided the, the warmth and breast during infancy. They want the caregiver mommy. Those men, those sorts of men, what's good about them? Well you know they don't cheat for the most part because they've got this caregiver does all the cooking and the laundry and the shopping and, and uh, everything involving the kids, if there are kids, the woman does it. Everything involving uh, the home and the hearth, you might say, the woman does it. Of course, the man is highly critical if she does any of these things the wrong way, and sometimes his specifications are not clearly laid out by, by any means. So the woman is kind of trapped. She's On one hand, she's the mother, but on the other hand, she's the servant, if you will. She's the employee of the husband if it's a marital. And that, to use a word I probably wouldn't use normally, that really sucks. And I see it happen. And I see women buying into this sort of thing of being the caregiver. Women who have tremendous aspirations and potential and creativity and things that they want to do, even if the woman is working, which is very normal in the modern world, she's expected to fulfill that caregiver mommy surrogate function. I mean, that's really horrible if you think about it. I think I said a moment ago that the guys like that never cheat. Why cheat? You know, they, they, they get, they're getting what they want out of, out of limit. The other kind of, uh, kind of man, once he's made a conquest, that's more or less it for him. He can be faithful in a certain way, but uh, something flits along, he's willing to you know, give it a shot. The whole idea of cheating, an interesting word, is something that we'll perhaps address in a subsequent episode of this. An interesting way of of thinking about roles, in in, in my experience, is films. And in my case, because I happen to be an opera lover, operas. Because they have these amazing opportunities to see other people's relationships and the problems that they have and how they work those relationships through. For example, a long time ago I was involved with a woman and we'd gone to see a film called Le Maupri, together to see a film in a theater, Le Maupri content by Jean-Luc Godard. This film stars Michel Piccoli, a very fine French actor, as a screenwriter to whom a job has been proposed. His wife, Brigitte Bardot, who was not as a spectacular actress. Of course, she's a gorgeous woman, but she's a spectacular actress. Jack Palance, the American actor, and Fritz Lang. What is going on in in, in this story? Jack Palance has approached Michel Piccoli to rewrite a film script of a film that Fritz Lang, the famous director of Metropolis, etc., who plays himself, as I mentioned a moment ago, is making of Homer's The Odyssey. And there are amazing scenes where Jack Pallant stands there and says you've got to have more sex and this kind of thing and he throws film can- cans around the room and all of this c- kind of stuff. In the meanwhile Brigitte Bardot is sitting there thinking you know what I mean this is um, really not comfortable for me because I thought I was marrying a man with a certain amount of integrity and here he is going in taking a a literary classic, you know, two millennia old, directed by one of the greatest film directors in the history of cinema, and he's going to add more sex to it, maybe sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Well, not true in in, in, in those times. In the meanwhile, Michel Piccoli and Brigitte Bordeaux have other things to talk about, including the fact that he refers to her past negatively not for anything sexual or anything along those lines, just because, well, you know, you're just a typist. You were just a typist. And I'm bringing you up. I'm elevating you. Here I am, this artist, this screenwriter, you're no longer sitting in an office tapping on the machine. So, the film is called Contempt because uh, there's aspects of contempt on a number of, of different levels, including, I believe, Brigitte Carter's contempt for her husband, Michel Picole. So I saw this with uh, the woman I mentioned previously, and we went back to to my place. And they had a glass of wine or some such thing. It was wine. And she said, okay, that was a bad film. And I'm not going to stop having this conversation with you until you agree that that was a bad film. You know, you may think it's a bad film, but do I have to sit there and agree that this film that we saw together, which is a highly respected movie and on many dozen best film lists by many respected filmmakers and critics and scholars, you know, you're not going to, just because you don't like it doesn't mean that I don't have to like it. But you know what's going on in a situation like that? We haven't brought up the subject since, it's something I still know, but I'm, I'm thinking that there was something about that film, the events between those characters, among those characters, that troubled her. There was something not worked out in her own life that was portrayed in that screen, and had our relationship been different and more communicative, we could have talked through that. Here, cheers. Green tea, and ginseng, and a little bit of tang. Delicious. I'm going to take another sip. But other fel- films and drama and, and, and opera, for example, Richard Wagner, his name comes up again somehow, but uh, in his opera, rather, Tristan und Isolde marvelous opera. And Tristan und Isolde. Tristan is a man who is, uh, works for, if you will, uh, Koenigmark, King Marka in Cornwall. He is sent, it's complicated, but I'm just going to scratch at the surface, he's sent to Isla to bring back Isolde as his bride, as Mark's bride. They have a history and matters going on between them. I'm not to get going to go into, but uh, Isola clearly doesn't want to do this. Uh, she wants to confront, they're sailing across the sea, she wants to confront Tristan on the boat before it hits Cornwall where they're going to meet Marca, uh, King Mark. And um, she has a, uh, a servant, a, a companion, if you will, named Brangina, a woman. He's old. His mother was a, a sorceress, and so is he. He's older to a certain extent. So she sort of lets Brangena know that uh, once we get Tristan to come out and have a conversation with, with me, I want him to drink a certain potion. And it's, uh, the idea is he, they're, they're going to drink poison. They're going to drink a, a death potion. But something happens. There's a switcheroo, and they end up drinking a love potion. And the opera goes on to be one of the great tragic love stories of all time. And to watch this motion from, if you will, hatred to love, even though it's, uh, it happens in the context of a potion, of a, a substance, if, if you will, is still a glory to behold. Uh, the end. Of, the end of the opera is sad. I warn you of that. The uh, greatest production of that opera stars my favorite opera singer, Walter Meyer. Speaking of whom, another interesting opera, heavily emotional opera about relationships, is Wagner's other opera, *Opera di Valkyra. Uh, there's a wonderful version of de di on the same channel that you're watching now on YouTube, starring Placido Domingo as Sigmund. Again, Baltrogmire is Zelinda, Linda, conducted at La Scala by the estimable and fantastic Ricardo Muti, whom one does not necessarily identify with opera. But in the, this opera consists of two individuals, a man and a woman, meeting him in instant chemistry, despite the fact that the the, the woman is married to a rather horrific character named Hunding. In the course of this interaction, they discover, going back to their family histories, that they are that Zigmund Z- 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 and Glinda are brother and sister. But that kind of ain't going to stop them. This is this is love indeed. So a duel between Hunding and uh, and Zygman is scheduled for the next morning. It's such an, an intense emotional piece. Wotan, the, the king of the gods is put through the ringer by his wife, the Queen of the Gods, Fricka, who doesn't like any of this. She doesn't want this incestuous situation to take place between these two siblings, brother brother, and, and, and sister. So, it ends up that Votan is forced to, con- to tell Runhilda, who later takes a much larger role, in the ring operas of Wagner to, to intervene against her, her, her will, so that in effect, Zygmunt the man will be defeated, will die. This is emotion at a very, very high level, and the study of relationships at a very, very high level. But on in terms of, no, of ordinary movies, there are so many others that, that are great, in my opinion, for, for couples to watch. My favorite director working in, in Film now is Lars von Trier, the Danish director. In particular, three of his of his films, "Breaking the Waves," about a young naive woman who has visions, visions of God, religious. She believes that she speaks with God. Who marries a rather rowdy worker on an oil derrick, and he has a accident on that derrick, and is left in, in a situation where he's Paralyzed instantly from the, the, the neck down And the paralysis isn't getting any better Earlier he discovered that his wife was a, was a great sensualist Their lovemaking had been fantastic And he did not want The husband did not want His wife to continue to exist Even though he was still alive Without, without physical love Without sensuality as uh, one of the characters says in that film, God gives everyone a talent and in the case of the wife, that talent was love. So the emotionality of that film and working through the emotions that those characters work through, love, what is the highest price that you will pay for love. If your partner says sleep with someone else, And I've watched that situation and seen that situation in in real life, by the way. And sometimes it's going to be disturbing and odd. Why don't you go out and sleep with such and such? Oh, Or uh, sometimes a friend uh, will say, you know, you really ought to go out and sleep with such and such. And there's like, whoa, what's what's going on here? Melancholia is another incredible, tragic love story starring Kristen Dunst and uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg. And finally, we get to Antichrist, the most difficult relationship film ever made by a wide, long stretch. A wide, long stretch. A couple are making love, and their infant child, while they're doing that, crawls out of its crib, and because it wants to get its toy, and ends up falling out, a window down several stories, into the snow, and dies. The husband is a cognitive behavior therapist type, and he says, we're going to go somewhere out into the middle of, uh, of uh, in a cabin in the woods, and we're going to work through all of these things, and I'm going to tell you what to do, one step at a time, and you're going to conquer your fears, and you're going to conquer all of your, your negative emotions involving your child's death. Well, it's not that easy. William um, Defoe, the excellent uh, co-star with Charlotte Gainsbourg, again in, the, in that film, actually spent some time with cognitive, cognitive behavior therapists to understand their, their technique. They probably weren't so happy after the, that they saw the film. So role-playing avoid bad roles involve, avoid you, if you go into bed, enforce a role on your partner of some sort. Now I can acknowledge that there is a type of sensual love play in which the woman can have the affect of a prostitute and I've known people who've done that and there's a, there are also situations where there is an acting out and here it gets more problematic of a rape type of situation between a consensual couple who understand all of the the implications of, of this, and who are sensitive to them, this is not necessarily a bad thing. But it needs to be discussed thoroughly. with full understanding. And it's interesting to ask whether violence and sensuality can go hand-in-hand hand and can be part of the same situation. And I would say, yes. Violence, you know, I'm talking about a slap from, from time to time. Of course, uh, hickeys, as they say, and, and scratches are, are um, just happen. And people say that uh, pain and pleasure are, are very close. Well, um, hmm, it's interesting. Not necessarily false, but it has to be done with, with love, understanding, ecstasy, and never letting sensuality out of the picture, and never letting out the most important element in all of this, which is respect, and to bring me back to what I've talked about before, honoring one's beloved honor one's beloved in everything you do honor them praise them verbally as appropriate but to honor to be with someone and honor them is Not necessarily verbal, it's done with the eyes, it's done with the affect, it's done with touch. It's done just by your presence with your loved one. So your loved one should know that you're honoring them all the time. And when you go from that to a sensual situation, the results are amazing. Thank you for joining me on this somewhat cursory discussion of these three issues I brought up today energy roles. Very, very important things that uh, I've mentioned. So, I look forward to seeing you on future programs and look for the slide at the end of this broadcast, which will give you the information on the person who is a sublime, superb, very experienced and authoritative love and relationship coach, and counselor. Thanks again for joining me. As promised, here is my recommendation of a love and relationship coach and a psychotherapist. Her name is Anita De Francesco. Her website is www.tantrawisdom.com. She's also on her Tantra Wisdom Facebook business page and her love and relationship coach. Facebook page. She is not only a love and relationship counselor and psychotherapist, she is a two-time national award-winning journalist and the author of two excellent books, Live Free, Recreate and Liberate Your Life, which deals with matters such as the ones we discuss here in this podcast, mindfulness, sexuality, relationships, and so forth, and the Donna Gentili story a spellbinding true crime thriller about the brutal murder of her first cousin and of her attempts to identify the killer. Both of these books, Live Free, Recreate and Liberate Your Life, and The Donna Gentile Story are available on Amazon, or check her website. Adoring and honoring someone you truly admire is an exponential pleasure because in the process you are also adoring and honoring yourself. I am sensitive and perceptive enough to understand and appreciate and love and adore my beloved special gifts, the things that are most marvelous and unique about her. True love of another is also the highest, best, and most exalted form of self-love. Love Love is in the now, in the moment. The thought of the one you love should fill you with transcendent joy. You should tingle from head to toe and immediately want to give them the universe. With that feeling, all of the neurotic lack of trust and self-doubt vanish like toxic dust blowing away in the wind. And you are left not only truly whole, not only truly yourself, but ready to become new selves and to share those selves with your beloved. When two people are ready to take this journey together, it is magic. It is the greatest magic there is. Some people know how to provoke love in the other person, serial lovers, as it were, men and women alike. They know what buttons to push to get love, but they don't necessarily love themselves. Rather, they play cat and mouse with their prey. To love, you have to admit your lack and recognize that you need the other, that you miss who or him. Those who think that they are complete on their own, or want to be, don't know how to love. And sometimes they ascertain this painfully. They manipulate, pull strings, but of love they know neither the risks nor the delights. Jacques-Alain Muller, Jacques Lacan's son-in-law, and the editor of Lacan's seminars from his own book, On Love. The, quote, doesn't stop being written, is the impossible, as I define it on the basis of the fact that it cannot in any case be written. And it is with this that I characterize the sexual relationship. The sexual relationship doesn't stop not being written. Jacques Lacan, Seminar 20, Encore on feminine sexuality, the limits of love and knowledge. According to Jacques Lacan, love is no more than an illusion designed to make up for the absence of harmonious relations between the sexes whether presented in mythical terms, as in Plato's Symposium, or in psychoanalytic terms, as in Michael Ballant's concept of genital love. Ballanthill, the genital love, free from pregenital traits, may be examined for positive aspects, such as genital satisfaction or orgasm, idealization, tenderness, and regard a consideration for the partner. Ballant finds that genital satisfaction or orgasm may be completely narcissistic and exist without love. Idealization may be a hindrance to rather than a hallmark of a true love relationship. Tenderness is a quality associated with frustration, inhibited development, weakness, and immaturity. Regard and consideration for the partner in love is an artifact of civilization and a perpetuation of archaic, infantile forms of love. Genital love has little to do with genital sexuality. It represents a fusion of contradictory claims, a reconciliation of pregenital and cultural needs. Fully mature genital love remains an abstraction. Or, so thought psychoanalyst Michael Ballant. But back to considerations relating more directly to Jacques Lacan. The sexual drives are not towards a whole person, but towards part-objects. There is, therefore, no such thing as a sexual relationship between two subjects, only between a subject and a partial object. For the man, the object A, objet petit A, the object of desire which we seek in the other, occupies the place of the missing partner, which produces the matheme of fantasy. In other words, the woman does not exist for the man as a real subject but only as a fantasy object, the cause of his desire. As something rooted in the real, sex is opposed to meaning, and sex, in opposing itself to sense, is also, by definition, opposed to relation opposed to communication.